Hello and welcome to the final Pure Euros podcast. I'm Owen Brown and joining me for this is Alistair Madden. Ali, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, Owen. Just looking out at the Glasgow sunshine, hopefully go and soak up some of that post-recording. Yeah, feeling good, feeling good. Excellent. Um, so the, the Euros are now over. Uh, Italy, of course, are the champions. And our plan for this evening is that we're going to look back over the tournament by picking a team of the tournament and also revisiting five key moments. Ali is going to pick the moments and I'm going to pick the team. Um, I think we'll start, Ali, with two choices from you, then my team, and then back to you to close out on some of the more memorable incidents um, of Euro 2020. So, yeah, start us off, Ali. Um, what's your first big moment from this tournament? Uh, this isn't this isn't going to be easy for me, Owen. But I'm I'm going to highlight Patrick Sheik's goal against against Scotland because as Jeez, as, we always, <laughs> as we always do, pure football will pride themselves on and being as impartial as is possible. And I think it would it would be wrong of me to not mention this as one of the top five moments of the tournament. I think initially a lot of the chat surrounding this goal was was more negative in terms of David Marshall's positioning and his naive positioning at that. But I just think this goal was probably, in my opinion anyway, the goal of the tournament. I think when we then heard Patrick Sheik say in the post-match interviews, whether or not he was telling the truth or not, but when he remarked that he'd, he'd already noticed Marshall's positioning earlier on in the game, and so it was, it was you know, an intentional effort... I think when you combine that with the technique to then execute the finish, I just thought it was as devastating as it was watching the game at the time. Now that we can, we've been able to take a step back and appreciate the tournament as a whole. I, I really do have to to highlight that. I don't. I don't know if you would maybe agree with me on that one, Owen, or if if you think I'm being too impartial. <laughs> Uh, we're going to have to change our, our tagline to unbiased, in-depth and sadomasochistic, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, fair enough. It was a, an incredible moment, um, a great, great goal. And, and like you say, showed a, um, let's focus on the positives and, and not the kind of uh, Scottish failures in that goal, but the smartness and the technical execution by uh, Patrick Schick, who had a very good tournament overall. And that was, you know, maybe a kind of... Um, yeah, de definitely a moment to, to celebrate if we're looking back over the tournament. I guess this is a tournament that had more goals than most. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a good way to start your, your top five with a goal, a real standout goal. Um, anything else you want to say about that particular incident, Ali, or do you want to move on to your next second well, choice? Not as so much that particular incident, but just to expand on what we were saying about Patrick Sheik having this great tournament. I think he's set himself up really nicely for what will hopefully be a really productive season in the Bundesliga uh, by Leverkusen. I think a lot of people will be watching him even more closely than they were pre-Euro 2020. I think Czech Republic had a really good tournament. I think there were some some real standouts in that team. Um, I think Thomas Vatslik as well in goals was, was superb. Um, he was up there dominating most of the charts for, for goalkeepers' numbers anyway. Um, so I, I think Czech Republic maybe came into the tournament uh, as, as a team that a lot of people were maybe writing off. But I think when we were speaking to Thomas Danicek before, I mean, he certainly had enough confidence in that team. I think there's there's a good unity there. A lot of the, the players do come from some of the top teams in the Czech Republic. And I think when you can then just transfer that over to the national team, uh, that sort of cohesion and that sort of togetherness, you, you are going to give yourself a chance of doing reasonably well. And they, they had an excellent tournament. They, they they almost took Denmark to extra time as well. I, I think that second half against Denmark, they, they, they gave themselves a performance to be proud of and absolutely one of, one of the surprise packages and, and the, you know, Patrick Sheik spearheading that lineup. Um, definitely one for us to watch even more closely now uh, than we were pre-Euros. Yeah, I agree. What um, thirteen goals and thirty six appearances across all competitions last season for mm -hmm. Bayer Leverkusen, including his first goal in um, European competition, as far as I'm aware. Um, and yeah, it'd be interesting to see with him kind of getting a you know land. he's bumped about a wee bit, you know, from Sampdoria to Roma to RB Leipzig and now to Bayer Leverkusen. It will be interesting to see how he does, and you know, only as kind of I think this is his 
second instance of having a, a second season at a club out with uh, the Czech Republic. So mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how that goes for him and if he can kind of build on, on his performance at Euros. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, and maybe produce some more memorable moments for us so that we don't just kind of uh, always <laughs> think of him combined with this particular goal. But yeah, definitely agree yeah. it was a standout moment of the tournament. What's your, your next uh, standout moment, Ali? Yeah, so I've gone for Leon Goretzka's celebration against Hungary. Obviously, it was one of the more negative narratives that was developing, what well, has been developing for quite some time in Hungary under um, Orban's leadership. Um, but it was a narrative that we saw develop even more during the Euros. We saw some really quite um, abhorrent banners um, within the, the Puskás Stadium in Hungary. And... We, we, yeah, there was a lot to to criticise, and obviously that was set against this backdrop of the anti-LGBTQ um, legislation, which has been introduced in Hungary, effectively designed to criminalise um, any LGBTQ education in Hungarian schools, thereby um, depriving young people in Hungary of the chance to to maybe explore a bit more about themselves and to come to terms, not not come to terms, that's a negative way of putting it, how do I put it more positively, but to understand that people are different and they themselves could be different. So against that really quite abhorrent backdrop, we saw Leon Goretzka scoring for Germany right in front of the Hungarian ultras and their questionable social stances and we saw Leon Goretzka celebrating by creating a love heart with his hands. And I thought that was, it almost went unnoticed at the time. Not that it went unnoticed, but it, there wasn't a huge deal made of it at the time. But I think that was one of my favourite moments of the tournament. And that coupled with the stadiums around Germany being lit up in the LGBTQ colours, I thought that was really poignant, really a, a really nice touch. Bearing in mind that UEFA had said, that at the, the Allianz Arena or the Fußball Arena München, I can't remember the exact name they had to give it during the Euros for sponsorship reasons, but they weren't allowed to light up in the rainbow colours. And I, I just thought, given that we know a lot about Leon Goretzka's background anyway, he does a lot of really good work for some really excellent social causes. That was just one of the moments of the tournament for me, for him, just to stand up before those ultras who would probably have been absolutely fizzing at the sight of Leon Goretzka doing this because they will have known the significance of that gesture. For me, um, and it's, it's not even a political gesture, I don't understand why people seem to think they can make this argument that LGBTQ plus education, LGBTQ plus um, like movements are political. They're not political. They're, they're not political in the slightest. So that gesture... Um, from Goretzka was was a real highlight for me and I think I, I don't think UEFA covered themselves in glory with how they've how they've gone about um that whole incident with, with, with Ukraine and that whole sort of social political I say political begrudgingly social political backdrop there. Um but I think moments like that from Leon Goretzka really do just reassure us all that actually there there are good people in the world, and I think that would have meant so much to a lot of people. I know that Nicky Bandini on Guardian Football Weekly raised that, or was it on the continent? It was one of the two. She raised that um, observation, and I think that was when I then realised as well that you know that gesture. It literally took Goretzka a couple of seconds to do, but it would have meant so much to so many people. People, particularly those in Hungary, you know, young people in Hungary who are maybe not too sure about their sexuality and they're seeing their government enacting legislation which will make it more difficult for them to understand who they are as a person. But if, if for them to see that gesture from someone with such influence and such sway as Leon Goretzka, one of the best holding midfielders in world football, I thought that was a lovely touch, Owen. Um, maybe that's part of a you know slight theme of the tournament as well. You know, players... Um, standing up for causes that they believe in um, and kind of not backing down in the face mm-hmm. of, um, 
criticism. You know, I'm thinking, for instance, of Tyrone Mings and his kind of takedown of uh, Pretty Patel that we've seen very recently. Uh, and yeah, definitely a, a memorable moment there with Liam Goretzka's celebration against Hungary. I was wondering if just the, the reason that it went slightly unnoticed at the time was just purely due to this. I was looking at some photos there of Goretzka's um, celebration and the the size of his arms, you know, we've all seen his muscular <laughs> growth um, since he moved to Bayern Munich. Maybe his biceps just eclipse um, <laughs> his hands and make them look a little bit tiny in comparison. And I, I mean that, uh, yeah, I'm being stupid here, but um, yeah, certainly a gesture that maybe I I didn't notice necessarily at the time of watching, um, but is definitely something to be celebrated and a, a, an interesting moment from this tournament. Um, yeah. So that's our. Our first two moments, uh, kind of memorable moments, key incidents from this tournament. We're going to move on now and we're going to talk about a team of the tournament that I've kind of put together. Uh, I set a rule um, when doing this for myself of no more than two players allowed from any one competing team. Um, I felt that would maybe be a little bit more interesting and challenging than just a, a free-for-all. And also, I, you know, I've seen some other people maybe do a rule where they only have one player from each team, but I think then that leads to kind of just squeezing in people that didn't necessarily have particularly um, good or interesting tournaments just, just for the sake of it. So that's the rule. Um, I put together a long list for each position and then sort of whittled things down. Um, was also generally of the mindset that players needed to have had at least four matches to be considered, or I was kind of flexible around that. Um, I probably waited performances and involvement in the knockout stages a little bit more heavily than in the group. So here we go. And Ali, um, you're welcome to jump in uh, with any criticism or alternative <laughs> selections. Um, yeah, you can throw some names at me after I say who I'm, I'm doing. Um, so let, let, let's go through from, from back to front. So goalkeeper, uh, and bear in mind these Choices are influenced by the fact that I was capped at two players per team, right? So goalkeeper Courtois is my choice in goal. Um, so Courtois got three clean sheets for Belgium. Um, he conceded the second fewest goals in the tournament. Um, he had um, the best post-shot expected goals minus goals conceded per 90. as a bit of a mouthful of keepers that got out of the group stage. It basically means that, you know, either through luck or good saving and so on um, versus the goals that, that, sorry, the shots that were actually on target, um, he performed well, um, you know, in comparison to other goalkeepers that got past the group stages. So for all that, and also with the fact that I couldn't maybe pick some other people that I was impressed with too, he's my choice. Ali, um, are there any others, names in the mix there that you'd throw at me? Yeah, Owen, I do appreciate that you're somewhat, well, quite significantly uh, constrained by the fact that we did cap it at two players maximum from any given team. And I think that was a sensible thing to do because you could end up having a team uh, dominated by two or three sides and we wouldn't have the same variety of players. But I do think we have to give a mention to to uh, Donnarumma. Um, I think he's had, and I'm sure you'll agree on, he's had an excellent tournament. I think maybe you can ask questions of some aspects of his distribution, but he, he was alert enough and quick enough to get that move going for the goal against Spain, ultimately mm -hmm. scored by Chiesa. So I, I think he has switched on enough there and he, he can work on his distribution. He's still so, so young. Yep. Um, and another aspect, sorry, I'll, I'll let you move on really quickly on in a minute, but what I noticed with Donnarumma is that he has this ability to obviously use his entire frame, but he has this ability to make very, very good shots look a lot more saveable than they actually are. And the one example in particular I'm thinking of was the shot from Kevin De Bruyne um, in the mm. quarterfinal. That's an excellent yep. shot. That is De Bruyne's, that's the kind of lasting image you have of De Bruyne, isn't it? Or De Bruyne taking a shot, that sort of driven shot. It's a really difficult height for the keeper and it's arrowing towards the corner. And Donnarumma made it look very saveable. And I think as well you saw with the penalties, against England um he made he made like decent enough penalties look really quite average really quite poor just because he uses his frame so well but yeah totally agree with your Courtois out I think he's definitely making an argument to be considered well one of the best keepers at the tournament and, and still one of the best keepers in world football yeah I'd agree be throwing the mix would be Casper Schmeichel who I thought did really well too um 
Jordan Pickford, begrudgingly perhaps, would include. Um, he wasn't tested as much as other keepers, perhaps, because of you know England's style of play, but I think he did reasonably well out with the free kick from the Danes when called upon. Um, Jan Sommer, I was impressed with, um, you know, particularly in, in um, the, the game against France. Um, and Vaklic, um of the Czech Republic, I think, did well also. Um, but yeah, my pick's Courtois. Let's, let's move on from there. And I'm going to go for left-back. Um, my left-back of choice is Luke Shaw. So Luke Shaw played every game bar the opener for England, and I was really impressed by him. I think he showed a good engine to get forward. Um, he did get exposed at times versus Denmark, but that was kind of systemic. And I, I think that overall, he was really impressive. Um, he impressed me also with aspects to his game that maybe I was um, a little bit unsure that he would display. So his passing under pressure, I think, was really um, good. I think his goal versus Italy in the final is a good example of that. I think there was a, there was a lot of focus on the, the play by Harry Kane through that goal and the cross. And of course, the finish by Shaw. But I think it's worthwhile looking at how Shaw started the move. And it wasn't the only time in the tournament where he, he was able to um, link up with people and, and play quick, short passes um, in tight spaces. So he, he would be my pick for left back. If you had to suggest one other person for left back instead, who would it be, Ali? I'd probably have to go for uh, Leonardo. Spinazzola, I think he's an excellent tournament. And there would also be a mention for, for Yaki Maila. I know that for his club, he plays more on the right-hand side. But for Denmark, the, this tournament, he was predominantly used on the left-hand side. I think Maila and Spinazzola were both so fun to watch. But yeah, I think Luke Shaw probably just about edges it. I think he, he had an excellent tournament. We'll maybe come on to Maila um, in a little bit. In terms of Spinazzola, I think for me it was just the... Uh, the minutes um, because he didn't play past the match against Austria and most of his game time then obviously was in the group stages and you know some of that was against pretty inferior opponents such as Turkey I thought he was really really good his ball carrying was excellent um, it was a, a real threat for them but I think just in terms of his impact overall in the tournament I, I felt that Shaw um, probably would be the um, better pick for me uh, and also you know keep in mind that there were limitations in terms of the number of Italians I could pick. Um, and let's talk about that now, right? So we're going to move on to the centre-backs. And um, I've picked Chiellini and Bonucci, um, centre-back pairing. I was finding it really difficult to pick between the two of them. I knew I really wanted one of them in at centre-back. Could only have two Italians. And ultimately, I decided, well, you know, they did really well as a pairing. So let's do that. Um, so I've got them both in. Chiellini, I, I thought, was incredible um, in terms of his leadership. He's the mm -hmm. fifth oldest player at the tournament. Um, and, yeah, he, he really led from the back of things. Um, Bucci um, was incredible. You know, the, the consistency throughout the tournament, popping up with goals, um, defending the box was brilliant. And also, he, you know, belied his age um, to, to be able to keep up with things throughout a very, you know, kind of intense tournament. They weren't infallible, um, particularly against Spain and England, I felt, where they were maybe faced with a different sort of challenge up front. Um, but generally, they were very, very solid, um, only conceded four goals in seven matches. Um, and I think in addition to that, Bonucci in particular also played some quite nice passes through the lines at times. So that that's my selection for the centre-back pairing. Um, what about you, Ali, if you had to pick two centre-backs um, that weren't Bonucci or Chiellini, who, who would they be? You've put me on the spot there, Owen. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 as erratic as John Stones can be, I think he had quite a good tournament again. I think certainly when I was reading some of the post Sunday night material from English journalists, uh, John Stones was being praised for having had an excellent tournament uh, elsewhere. I think Emmerich Laporte played well for Spain, and it seems strange to say that when we consider that mix-up between him and Paul Torres for the goal against Switzerland. But I think Laporte, um, now that he is playing for Spain, he'll have an important role to play, particularly at the World Cup in 2022. I think that Spain squad, and we could get into much more of a discussion about that, but I think that Spain squad is really exciting and Emmerich Laporte will have an, a very important role to play there. Yeah, I would say probably Emmerich Laporte and... John Stones. I'm not well, obviously they know each other from, from club level, so maybe in our dream team of the tournament they would they would be quite good together as well. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a good shout. Um, I think other names that are kind of popping up for me were maybe um, Harry Maguire, who I thought was very impressive too. Um, but yeah, I, I guess Stones was quietly good too for England. And Christensen for Denmark, who showed you know kind of positional versatility and good mm-hmm. um, passing and tackling. They, they played very well. Um, let's move on to right back. So I've been a bit sneaky, sneaky here, as you <laughs> may have kind of noticed um, earlier. I'm putting in Joachim Myla at right back. Um, he, of course, played at left wing back for the majority of this tournament. But as you said, he's right footed, you know, at club level, he plays often on the right. Um, and he did, in fact, for part of the game against Wales, you know, he took advantage yeah. of Gareth Bale's positioning with a switch over onto the right. So I think that kind of justifies it for me. Um, I thought he was great throughout the tournament, athletic, powerful, good passer great crosser, including that wonderful outside-of-the-boot assist um, that he got. So, yeah, Joachim Myla is the final element of my uh, defence. If, if you had to pick another right-back, who would it be, Ali? Anybody else you can think of? Um, I, I think Stuga Larsson had an excellent... <laughs> uh, so the, the actual player that Denmark played at right-back, I think mm. it was... Um, I know I totally understand the decision to put Myla in there, um, and he did have a really influential um, spell there against Wales. I know that the game was already slipping away from, from Wales by that point, but I think it's you're more than entitled to put Myla in at right back. Uh, yeah, I think Striegel Larson particularly against Czech Republic. I actually thought, and it's strange to see this perhaps given Myla's sumptuous assist for Kasper Dahlberg in that game, but I, I thought Striegel Larson was actually better <laughs> than Myla just over those 90 minutes, not over the tournament as a whole, obviously, but over those 90 minutes. And I think Striegel Larson's set-piece delivery, that experience that he brings as well, I felt like that was really important for Denmark. So I'd I'd maybe offer him as an alternative option to Myla. I think that's a good shout, um, Ali. Um, let's rattle through the midfielders, right? So I'm going to say all three of my midfielders, and then I'm going to come to you to see if there's anybody else that you would um, suggest, mm-hmm. because they're, they're all three kind of central midfielders, so they're quite similar. Um, my first one um, is N'Golo Conte. Um, so I thought that Conte had a really underrated tournament, um, mm-hmm. particularly in a system in which he has to do a lot of work in normal times and for portions of the match against Switzerland, he was completely on his own in midfield. So I, I would be tempted to give more recognition to him instead of Pogba. Um, that, and I've I've seen most people give. Obviously Pogba had some outstanding passes and, and you know, um, attacking contributions but I was just really impressed with the the work that Conte got through not just in the game against Switzerland but in for instance the game against Germany um, and, and you know there's a lot of criticism of the France team or, or Deschamps management of the, the France team that they maybe don't let the, the kind of breaks off and let people go but that doesn't mean that you don't have to do a lot of work defensively and I, I think that Conte does a, a hell of a lot for them and I, I think that he deserves a little bit of recognition for this tournament. So he's my first choice in midfield. Um, second person I'm going for in midfield is Pierre-Emil Hoiberg of Denmark. Um, mm-hmm. I think that Hoiberg was really quite brilliant in this tournament and gave so much to it. Um, only nine players from Italy and England combined played more minutes than him, despite them obviously having a game more mm-hmm. um, with extra time than Denmark. And I think that really showed, you know, he left it all on the pitch. He, he gave a really great, strong performance versus Wales. He showed incredible grit to hang on versus Czech Republic when, you know, he and, and Delaney were obviously absolutely exhausted. <laughs> and he put in a, a really valiant effort against England. Um, and, and he delivered in a lot of different ways. You know, he was really good positionally. He filled a lot of space. He, you know, cut off passing lanes, worked incredibly hard. But also on the ball, you know, he, he um, made a lot of forward passes, got Denmark into really good um, attacking positions. So he, he's my second choice in midfield. So that's Conte and Hoiberg so far. Um, the final central midfielder I'm going for is Pedri. Um, mm-hmm. I thought Pedri was a, a joy to watch in this tournament. He's really great at finding space. He's a brilliant passer. He's so, so confident and technically skilled. Um, he stole the show a bit against Italy in the semi-final um, with the, the damage he was able to do, but I felt he was just as important for Spain in each of the matches that he played in. Um, really, really stuck out to me and, and was really impressive. Um, again, in a team that maybe didn't um, you know, let, let the reins off or maybe didn't have the attacking players to deliver upon what kind of he was presenting as a platform to the extent that he'd want, but that 
you know, shouldn't take away from his involvement. So that's my my midfield there, Kante, Hoiberg and Pedri. I think it's quite a well-balanced midfield, the one that would kind of mm-hmm. work together. Um, is there anybody else, central midfielder, excuse me, any other central midfielders, Ali, that you would suggest that I've maybe missed out that have had really good tournaments? I think we do have to mention Marco Verratti. I know that some people within our group chat maybe question his contribution off the ball, but even in terms of his off the ball contribution, I think Verratti was up there for ball recoveries and he was up there for tackles one as well. I think maybe only Calvin Phillips one more tackles than him, but I could be misremembering that. So don't don't quote me on that one, Owen. But I, I just think Verratti, um, and and I'm the ultimate Verratti fanboy. I've I've been banging the Verratti drum for quite some time. Um, just I just think he's fantastic, poetic, majestic. And I, I thought again. There, there were there are times when you watch Verratti, and you almost can't believe his audacity to to actually just control the ball and, and dribble it out of trouble rather than just hoof it clear. Mm-hmm. Um, and and obviously he missed the first two games of the tournament through injury, but I felt that Italy were able to to maybe step up another level um, after. He was introduced to the team, and I know that might sound strange because they won those opening two games with relative ease. But I just felt the team unit as a whole was was better still uh, once Verratti was introduced. So I put Verratti in there. I think probably Frankie De Jong deserves a mention. Um, it felt like at times he, he well. I, you can make an argument that Depay was quite influential, but I think De Jong probably is one of the few players who who can walk away from the tournament in the Netherlands team anyway and, and say that they were played up to their full potential. I think De Jong has an excellent future ahead of him, and I think that Barcelona midfield with De Jong and Pedri uh, this season, but next season there's going to be a lot more attention on it again. Um, and in terms of our third player... <sighs> I would, I would probably just have agreed with you on Pierre. I, mean, I would agree with you on, on Pedri uh, and Conte. I think they're excellent picks, but I would have to just put Hoibe in there as well. I know that you said three different midfielders, but I've, I've all tournament, I've loved watching him. He's dominated a lot of the underlying numbers charts. He's just been slightly different to that role that we're used to seeing him play with Tottenham, and I know that's been a recurring theme. Every time I watch Denmark, I was looking out for what Hoibe was doing on and off the ball. I just think alongside Delaney, he was so good. He was so composed and he was the main player who allowed Denmark to exert enough control over games. And they didn't, over the tournament, have a full 90 minutes in which they exerted total control, but they exerted control over enough of almost every one of their games that they were able to, to reach the semi-finals. And yeah, Hoibier absolutely has to be in any team of the tournament. Great. Um, some good shouts there, Ali. I think in terms of variety, I was kind of wondering whether the fact that often in the kind of Italy system, he and Jorginho are kind of doing relatively similar jobs, does mm-hmm. that maybe kind of diminish the, the kind of attention that either one of them would get um, from, from us as a kind of... Um, yeah player of the tournament or, you know, to stand out in a living, um, you know, you, you kind of like, maybe it's effective. I mean, obviously they won the, the tournament, but maybe it just means that yeah. you don't kind of stand out quite as much. I think, um, you know. I think, oh, and sorry, just to come back in there, I think <laughs> Jorginho's the sort of player that people get annoyed at you, or not everybody, but some people would get annoyed at you to even suggest that is one of the players of the tournament because and I, and I would probably agree that he should, he's not playing the tournament, but he should absolutely be up there in the consideration, the kind of top five, top six players probably. But a lot of people are angered by that just because of the type of player that Jorginho is. But it's 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 the subtle impact that Jorginho has on a, a game that just, I think, separates him from a lot of other holding midfielders, a lot of other more kind of defensive-minded midfielders. I think he, he had an excellent tournament. But yeah, as you're saying, on the fact that there are two of them who do fairly... Similar similar roles, it would be easy and forgivable to to maybe not fully appreciate just how good those two players are. Mm. 
And the the only other person I was going to mention was Granite Xhaka, who I thought was really good for Switzerland. Mm-hmm. But of course, he, he missed out um, the game against Spain that they went out in the quarterfinals. So you know, maybe for me, didn't have quite as enough of, of an impact on the the tournament. Although, yeah, I, I picked Kante, who of course went out at the hands of Switzerland. So maybe <laughs> I'm, I'm talking nonsense. But yeah, I, I thought Xhaka had a, a good tournament in many ways. Um, I was impressed by him. So he's another midfielder I'd be happy to kind of have in the mix. Let, let's move on to my sort of attacking midfielders. So I've gone with uh, Kevin De Bruyne as the first of those two. So I felt that De Bruyne had a, a really quietly quite good tournament that was obviously hampered by mm. you know a little bit of injury and obviously also Belgium not going past the quarterfinals. But De Bruyne had the highest expected assist per 90 of anybody that played three or more 90s. They played some absolutely beautiful passes. Remember the assist against Denmark for Thorgan mm-hmm. Hazard, where he kind of, um, you know, faked the the kind of shot and then passed it across the face of goal. That was really nice. Um, I thought he did some really good counter attacking versus Italy, where he and Lukaku were um, pretty unlucky at times not to, um, you know, get get a goal against them. So yeah, I, I thought that despite the the obvious difficulty for him, you know, it was it was quite a tough tournament. I felt for him, you know, a, a Belgium that, like you've said throughout these podcasts, maybe didn't have enough control over games, and maybe you know he was kind of having to do a lot of work on his own at, at times. Um, I, I was kind of impressed by him, so he would be my first pick for attacking midfield spot. My second pick for kind of attacking midfield spot is Raheem Sterling. So mm-hmm. I thought Sterling was a, a real threat throughout this tournament with his dribbling, uh, his ability to kind of draw defenders to him, um, his ability to win fouls. I'm thinking, of course, of that penalty, but also <laughs> uh, many other moments and just generally being a real nuisance. And, and he also he managed to pop up with three goals um, and good positional versatility as well. I think, you know, so he's capable of playing on the left and right. Um, even, you know, there's moments against Italy where he was playing, in my view, as, as sort of a centre-forward when Kane dropped deeper. So, you know, it brings a, a, a lot of different elements to the table for, for a manager. And I just thought overall he was really very impressive. Um, so those are my two picks for the sort of attacking midfield roles. Um, you got... One suggestion for somebody else, Ali, that that should have been in there. Um, it's it's probably not a player who would deserve a place in the team of the tournament, but just maybe someone else. I know we've already spoken about him, but someone else who I'd quite like to give a mention to would be Jeremy Doku. And I'm not suggesting Owen that he would feature in any teams of the tournament. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I just really enjoyed watching him when he was playing for Belgium and I know that he didn't feature in every game but I really enjoyed watching him and he was one of those players who whenever he got the ball a bit like Chiesa you almost just sat up off your seat a little bit more so I would I would maybe say say a little mention for Jeremy Doku we mentioned that sort of advantageous hesitation that's sort of inherent in his running style that split seconds when he almost hangs in midair and then he explodes into a sprint. I'm really looking forward to hopefully seeing some more of that for Ren this season or elsewhere if someone does come in with a bid. And that was probably one of the one of the most memorable images of the tournament from Mion was was that sort of really um distinct and unique running style of Jeremy Doku. So I'm I'm gonna give him a little mention there. Not that he would probably ever feature in any teams of the tournament, but still, I think he warrants a mention. Sure, and I think that's maybe uh, for the attacking midfielders at least. Um, he's not the only guy that perhaps was good in a small spell, um, so mm-hmm. maybe didn't have the consistency over the tournament, or maybe didn't play the minutes in each match. Mm-hmm. For for me, maybe to put him in a team. So I'm thinking of people like Mikael Damsgaard, who I was really impressed by um, yep. for Denmark, but he tended to be taken off after the hour in every match that he played. Mm-hmm. Um, so as as much as it was great, um, you know, maybe just didn't have the impact in comparison to other people. I'd say I have it. Um, sorry, I'll jump. Yeah, go on. Jump in there. It's not not football related, or it's not too football related. But I have a friend who, well, in my opinion, anyway, is the absolute head of Mikael Damsgaard. Um, it looks so similar to him, and every time I see a picture of my friends, my friend Neil Wilson, um, I worked with him in Strasbourg, and I just I cannot get over how similar the two of them look. I don't know if anybody else sees it 
I'll need to say to my pals after if they if they think the same thing. But honestly, Owen, like so similar looking. Maybe they're the same person. Anyway, maybe the the Mikael doppelganger. Um, <laughs> so, in addition to him, I would say maybe Danny Olmo was really quite interesting versus Italy, very effective in the kind of false nine position and so on. But again, you know, hardly played out with that for Spain. So you know, um, and I thought that in spells, Lorenzo Insigne was very impressive. You know, it was obviously mm-hmm. that remarkable goal against Belgium. But also there were a lot of moments for me where he was incredibly frustrating with his decision-making mm-hmm. and his final ball. Um, um, Fede Chiesa, you mentioned, I thought was fantastic. But again, in, in relatively short moments because mm-hmm. you know I've not been a starter for the majority of the tournament. There were, of course, great moments, you know, the the, the game against Austria once he came on and um, moments even in the final where he was very effective but then again of course he was ultimately forced off through injury so I, I, I found that a kind of tough position to pick for in terms of you know people that really really kind of had an impact on a tournament but De Bruyne and Sterling are, are my choices um, centre forward is the only position left I've gone for Patrick Sheik, um, just to bring it back to that unbiased, in-depth and sadomasochistic edge, um, <laughs> given his uh, tournament goal against uh, Scotland. But that, of course, wasn't the only goal we scored, right? So Sheik got five goals, which placed him top scorer. Um, 1.13 goals per 90, which is just ridiculous. You know, the type <laughs> of thing that could only happen at a tournament. But I think the thing that impressed me about him was that they were mostly not penalties, right? So four non-penalty goals. And there was a variety of goals, obviously ridiculous long distance, but also, you know, he was a, a penalty box threat, um, really good movement in the box, but also wasn't just a penalty box striker. You know, he was running channels. He was um, able to link up and interplay. So I was kind of impressed with not just the goal scoring, but his um, general overall play. And he, he wasn't just somebody that kind of bullied things in the group stage. He managed to, um, you know, have... I think he scored two in the knockout stages, right? One against Netherlands and then one yep. against uh, Denmark in the match yep. they went out with. Um, so, yeah, for, for centre-forward, I, I would uh, you know, stick with him for my choice. What about you? If you had to pick a centre-forward, Ali, who would your choice be? Yeah, well, firstly, I would say that I love the, the choice of Paddy Sheik as your number nine. I think that's an excellent choice, Owen, and it's very pure football as well as a number nine pick. I think... Romelu Lukaku had a mm. fairly good tournament. I know that he missed at least one, you know, guilt-edged opportunity against Italy, but I think his movement was really good. I think we're seeing, well, it, it was one of the last images of of last season for, for Inter was Lukaku driving with the ball at his feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw that a couple of times for Belgium. We saw a really clever striker in terms of holding the ball up, in terms of bringing his teammates into play. So I would probably go um, for Lukaku as my number nine, I think, as as well. And I know that Byron Hutchinson might disagree with me, but I think Harry Kane probably deserves a mention. Uh, I think, obviously, he had a very slow start to the tournament, so he doesn't deserve to be in the team of the tournament, I don't think. But still, I felt... Some of his movement when he was dropping deep, that ability to, again, bring his teammates into play, confuse defences because he was dropping as deep. I think that's that's something that I enjoy watching. I was having some some heated discussions with friends as to whether or not Harry Kane belongs in the top three strikers in world football. I, I think he's probably just outside the top three. But I, I think he had a good tournament. Again, not, not an excellent tournament, but a very good tournament. Um, and I probably if, if I wasn't giving him a mention, it would be because I wasn't being totally impartial. I think some of his, how do we call it, gamesmanship to win free kicks um, is, is frustrating to watch as someone who isn't supporting England. But if it's your own striker who's doing that, it's your own striker who's helping you to, because that's one way of exerting control and it's to slow the game down and totally control the pace. So, as frustrating as it can be to watch Harry Kane fall to the floor so often, I think it's, it pains me to say this, but it's quite intelligent striker play in a way. And so I think probably we, we do need to give Harry Kane a mention. And he did chip in with, sure. with, with four goals as well. He certainly had a better knockout stage than group stage, right? He yeah, kind of came yeah. into the tournament, and whether that's because 
the type of style of striker he is at the moment um, is maybe more effective against teams that want to come out a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I was not impressed at all in the group stage. It was not no. working for him. But beyond that, yeah, begrudgingly as well, perhaps I would say he deserves a bit of praise. And certainly there were some good moments for him in the, the final against Italy. Um, mm-hmm. The other person I would maybe mention would be Kasper Dolberg, who I yeah. think was... Um, good for Denmark. You know, obviously we've been very impressed by uh, Denmark overall, um, and I thought that Dolberg um, took his chances really well. You know, double against Wales, for example, to kind of um, you know the, the key um, opening and second goals in that game, and just mm-hmm. a couple of um, matches where he was very good. Got the winner against the uh, Czech Republic, or the second goal, sorry, against Czech Republic, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, um, so he would be the other person I would kind of have as an inclusion. I guess that kind of brings us to the end of this section. Um, we've had some really good answers on Twitter, so I tweeted out this kind of question, and, and thanks to everybody. I'm seeing some answers from uh, Jamie Colday, Robert O'Brien, Jamie67, uh, Vincenzo Fulmini Nero, who I'm, I'm certain is definitely <laughs> a legit Italian, um, yeah. and various other people with teams of the tournament, lots of which look really good, so we'll give them a retweet, but do check them out if you haven't. Um, and yeah, let's let's move on to the next section of this podcast, Ali, which is kind of back to you and back to the memorable moments of the tournament. You want to give me your your third? So we spoke about Sheik's goal, we spoke about Goretzka's celebration. What's next? Yeah, oh, and just before I do move on, I would just um, just clarify what I was saying earlier about the anti-LGBT laws that have been enacted in Hungary. I, I did say, I, I think I said that the promotion of LGBT content in schools was was becoming criminalised. I don't know if it's actually been criminalised, but it is banned. I just wanted to clarify that so that we were totally accurate with what we were saying. But regardless, it's still a deplorable piece of legislation. But in, in more positive um, te- uh, terms, um, let's move on to, yeah, just my third moment of the tournament, which was the Swiss equaliser from Mario Gavranovic against France, um, bringing it back to 3 all after France had led 3-1 and Paul Pogba had treated this all to a really merry dance, which no doubt had Graham Souness squirming. Um, I think that game obviously capped off what's been labelled Magic Monday. We obviously had Croatia against Spain earlier on in the day. Spain went in 5-3 and then I think probably quite reasonably people were expecting France against Switzerland to be quite subdued or relatively subdued compared to what had just gone before it. Um, maybe expecting France perhaps just to to sneak through with a narrow win, but it was an excellent game. I think an excellent finish as well. We can question the positional awareness of some of the French players. We can question the decision-making and the build-up to the goal from some of the French players, but don't get anything away from the finish. I mean, Hugo Lloris is, is, is a great goalkeeper, maybe not quite at the top of his game anymore, but still a very, very good goalkeeper, and he had absolutely no chance with it. I think, obviously, I was rooting for France as the sort of second team once Scotland had gone out. Uh, but even I was was just absolutely loving that Monday night of football. Obviously, it then goes to penalties in Switzerland. Do prevail, Jan Sommer had an excellent game and would have an excellent game as well against Spain. So I think that Monday night is maybe up there with the best Monday nights of football ever and one of the best nights of European football of international football full stop uh, it, was, it was an excellent night thoroughly enjoyable some great goals as well some questionable defending um, and some some uh, some excellent finishes as well and I think that goal from Gavranovic was just so good and yeah capped off a memorable Monday one of the best that I can remember yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt that's the greatest day of international football um, in my lifetime that I can remember, definitely, Ali. Um, what's your, your fourth memorable moment from this uh, Euros? I've gone for the penalty shootout in the final between Italy and England. Um, and I'm not saying that because we're a Scottish podcast. Uh, I'm saying that because I think it was a great penalty shootout. I think it had it all. I think it had some excellent goalkeeping, it had some excellent penalties. Harry Maguire's penalty uh, was, I'm not quite sure how much he knew about it. 
in terms of where it was actually going to go in terms of the technique. But just looking at it ostensibly, it was a fantastic penalty. It was yep. highly satisfying to see the camera, the, the camera that had been placed in the net. It was highly satisfying to see that blown to, to smithereens. Um, so I, I think that moment, Pickford's save from Jorginho. Jorginho very, very rarely misses a penalty. Have to give credit to Pickford uh, for that save. I saw a good meme actually on Twitter. It was Jordan Pickford every time he has to make a save and just somebody looking absolutely raging. But in, in that moment, it was a brilliant save. Uh, and then we also had some excellent goalkeeping from Donnarumma as well. I think, obviously, what what was maybe... maybe, I, what maybe I was actually feeling really quite sorry, even in the moment, for Saka... Sancho and Rashford, even before all of this deplorable abuse poured out on social media, I think that was depressingly inevitable. Um, Owen, I think the minute that Rashford, Sancho and Saka missed their penalties, I was watching the game with my dad and he said, those lads are going to get subjected to the most vile and horrendous abuse on social media. Depressingly inevitable. Um, so that was... That was obviously a sour note for this penalty shootout. Um, but just focusing in on the actual penalty shootout itself, if we lived in a perfect world and we didn't have horrendous abuse um, afterwards, if we lived in a perfect world and all there was to appreciate was the penalty shootout, I think... Yeah, I think that was probably one of the, one of the the best penalty shootouts I've watched. I know it wasn't long one and it wasn't too too drawn out, but I think that's what also made it so memorable. I think we had some great penalties, some great goalkeeping, and it was just a shame that it was it was spoiled by the abuse that inevitably, depressingly, followed. Sure, I, I love that you've taken five minutes to um, manufacture this idea that you're not picking it just because of the result. Of the- <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh... Um, I, I I agree with you, um, Ali. It had you know a bit of everything. Some some good saves, some great penalties, some not very good penalties, um, mm-hmm. and of course uh, incredible tension. Um, so that's your your fourth kind of memorable incident from this Euros. What, what's the fifth and final um, thing that you're going to pick from this Euros? Oh, and it seems appropriate to draw our coverage of the Euros to an end with. A message for Denmark. So I've picked a moment from Denmark's campaign from a fifth and final moment of the tournament. I did think about mentioning Yakim Myler's assist. I still think that's one of my favourite assists ever. Um, Makes Scott Allen's assist of days gone by look pretty basic. Um, but I've gone instead for Andreas Christensen's goal against Russia. I'm not saying this was a turning point in Denmark's tournament. I'm not saying that at all. But bearing in mind that even at that point in time, Denmark didn't know if they would be going through. Russia just scored a penalty to bring it back to 2-1. And it looked maybe ever so slightly like Russia could perhaps squeeze their way back into the game. And then, obviously, the move, there was a couple of really good saves from the Russian goalkeeper. And it falls back to Christensen. Bearing in mind that you know, Christensen's a centre-half. Yes, he can play in midfield. And yes, he did spend some time in the Bronby Academy as a forward. But I don't think anybody expected the finish that followed. I think it was just the aftermath of the goal as well. The eruption of joy, the relief, the outpouring of emotion in that stadium in Copenhagen, which I've only ever been to once. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It was for a Champions League qualifier against Karabag of all teams. And Karabag actually won, but great stadium and and the outpouring of emotion that night. Owen, it just for me that was Denmark's tournament in microcosm. It was such an uplifting tournament, and I don't want to sound too melodramatic here. I don't want to sound too grandiose. Um, but what I do want to say is just Denmark for me were were the team of the tournament, not the team in terms of technical ability team of the tournament, but like the good news story of the tournament. They were the team who really kind of captivated all that's, you know, good about international tournaments or all that can be good about international tournaments. And that goal 
probably for me was was the best moment of, of Denmark's doing. I know that we had Damsgaard's free kick, we had da- Damsgaard's goal early in that game as well, but there was just something about the goal, about that sensation, the moment it leaves Christensen's boot of thinking, that's in, and that's an absolute screamer. The celebration as well, Christensen thumping his chest with, with his palm and just the, the crowds absolutely loving it. One of one of my favourite moments watching a game of football, uh, certainly in recent times, was that goal. So I felt like I had to end my top five moments with that goal from Andres Christensen. Yeah, it's a great shout, Alistair. Um, agree with you on that. And yeah, thanks for your five uh, most memorable moments of this tournament. That was great. Um, and that kind of brings us to the end of not just this podcast, but the European uh, Championship-related podcast for uh, Pure Football. But never fear, I think there is some more audio content for you know uh, coming your way very soon. Ali, you're, you're recording uh, first episode of Pure Championship with um, Cami, is that right? Pretty soon? Yeah, got that coming up tomorrow night, Owen. So I did say to Cami when, when I saw the weather tonight, I said to you, could we bring it forward so I could go out and make the most of the sun? Uh, cool. We're approaching, what, seven o'clock? So I'm going to go out and enjoy that. And Cami and I are actually going to be recording First episode of this season's Pure Championship uh, tomorrow night at half past nine. So big boots to fill. Chris Sampson's boots are absolutely massive, Owen. Uh, so I'm going to need to really be on my game to try and do do that vacancy um, justice. But really looking forward to that. Not so much looking forward to to come on at playing in the championship. But hey ho, we'll see how it goes. And it's, it's been a pleasure speaking about the Euros with yourself. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Just hope for you know most of your matches in the championship, you actually play players that you're allowed to play. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You're opportunity to talk about that with Cammy, I'm sure. Um, and thanks to everybody for listening. Um, really appreciated you being with us and all the reviews and nice feedback um, for the Pure Euros podcast and obviously for Ali's um, preview pods as well. There will also be some written content coming very soon on the Pure Football website, which I, I think People will be quite excited to hear about, um, let you know a little bit about that in the near future. Um, but yeah, for now, hope everybody's having a, a good week um, and is getting um, adjusted to the absence of European football, but is kind of eagerly excited for the return of league football wherever you are, as we are. Take care, everybody. Goodbye.